0: Welcome to Haunted Road, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Before I get started, I want to remind you all that this is the Season 2 finale of Haunted Road. We'll be taking a break before we return with Season 3, so please remain subscribed. And please keep telling your friends and spreading the good word. Thanks so much for your support and listenership. I love going on this journey with you every week. Hopefully, we can keep the show rolling for many seasons to come. Now, let's get spooky. One evening in April 2008, I found myself sitting in a morgue. Not really an unusual situation for an investigator like me, but this particular morgue was very deteriorated It had not been in use for years and was not open to the public. Sitting with a small group of other investigators, we started doing EVP work in the dark, and after a few questions, we played back our recordings. To our surprise, we heard a voice answering us, a female voice. It was faint, and what she was saying was hard to decipher, but it was most definitely a woman. This was what surprised us, because we were sitting in the morgue of one of the most notorious prisons in the world, a prison that only housed a male population. We were sitting in the morgue of Alcatraz. How are we investigating at Alcatraz, you ask? A small group of us had won a lottery for a coveted overnight stay on The Rock. At the time, they only allowed about 20 of these each year. As that night progressed, I needed to get a little sleep, so I settled in my bed, in cell block D, the most haunted portion of the prison, because of course that's where I'd sleep. However, within what seemed like moments of my eyes fluttering closed, I heard what sounded like footsteps enter my cell. I expected one of my friends to be playing a prank, so I opened my eyes wide and shot up in my bunk to scare them back, but I was alone All I could see was the faint glow of moonlight, and all I could hear was a foghorn in the distance. The entire building was still, and while I was supposedly alone, I certainly didn't feel that way. It's safe to say I did not get any sleep. I'm Amy Bruni, and this is Haunted Road. In June 1962, Frank Morris and brothers John and Clarence Anglin vanished from their cells in Alcatraz, never to be heard from again. It was later discovered that the men hatched an intricate plot to escape the island prison, tunneling holes in walls they disguised with false fronts, enlarging air vents, and fashioning dummies complete with human hair to pass night inspection so they could escape from their cells undetected. They used prison-issued raincoats to make crude life vests and a pontoon-type raft to assist in their swim, the Federal Bureau of Prisons wrote in A History of Alcatraz. A cell house search turned up the drills, heads, wall segments, and other tools, while the water search found two life vests, one in the bay, the other outside the Golden Gate, oars and letters and photographs belonging to the Anglins that had been carefully wrapped to be watertight, but no sign of the men was found. Other prisoners had tried to escape from the island before, but none had vanished without a trace. This infamous event was dramatized in the 1979 Clint Eastwood movie Escape from Alcatraz, but that's certainly not where the legends of the most notorious prison in American history started. Alcatraz was colonized in 1775 by Spanish explorer Juan Manuel de Alaya, who named it Alcatrazis after the island's pelicans, which was eventually anglicized to the name we know today. In the mid-19th century, the U.S. Army built a fort on the island, which held the first lighthouse on the West Coast. As a fortress, it was nearly impregnable as technology of the time could make it, the National Park Service has said. An American Gibraltar, and it was crowned with a brick masonry citadel, which may have been unique in the annals of American military architecture. While it was fashioned as a fortress, Alcatraz's fort never saw military action and instead became a prison to punish and detain insubordinate soldiers. Eventually, the detainee population grew to include Confederate sympathizers in the Civil War and conscientious objectors in World War I. It also has a dark history of imprisoning Native Americans who resisted the whitewashing imposed on them by the American government, Imprisoning Native activists as early as 1873, who were described as murderous looking Indians by a San Francisco newspaper in 1895. The article is filled with racial stereotypes of murderous and crafty redskins who refuse to live according to the civilized ways of the white men, the National Park Service later wrote. In 1934, the government converted the building into a federal penitentiary. There is maybe no other prison in America that has inspired the legends Alcatraz has or holds the same place in pop culture. Before you tweet at me, no, the prison from Shawshank Redemption isn't a real place. Alcatraz has inspired movies like the 1962 film Birdman of Alcatraz starring Burt Lancaster, that aforementioned Clint Eastwood movie and The Rock, the 1996 modern masterpiece, with Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage. Public fascination comes from its prominent spot in San Francisco Bay, and its history of imprisoning many of the most notorious criminals of the early 20th century. After gangster Al Capone was convicted of tax evasion in 1931, he was sent to prison in Atlanta, but in declining health and in need of isolation from other inmates who saw him as an easy target, was moved to The Rock in 1934. Other infamous inmates included George Machine Gun Kelly, the original, not that guy on the radio today, Alvin Karpis, who was the first ever public enemy number one, and Whitey Bulger, who did time there before he rose to prominence in the Boston mob and spent 16 years on the lam until he was caught in 2011. Most of the prisoners, though, weren't making headlines or pulling off nationally known capers, They were inmates at other prisons who consistently disobeyed the rules and needed stricter discipline or who were considered violent or had a high risk of escape. The prison on the island was made up of one building with four cell blocks, A through D, separated by hallways with names like Broadway, Times Square, Sunrise Alley, and Sunset Boulevard. There was also a library, a chapel, an inmate's barber shop, an exercise yard, and underground dungeon cells used for the most inhumane punishments. While there was a morgue in the building, no autopsies were actually performed there as there were relatively few mortalities and the executions would happen on the mainland at California's San Quentin State Prison. Also on the island were housing for the warden and for the guards and their families, an officer's club, a lighthouse, and several other operational buildings, for the approximately 300 civilians living on the island, including prison staff and their families, there was also a bowling alley and soda fountain. If you want to see something really cool, you can visit mpmaps.com Alcatraz and compare maps of the island today with how it looked in 1977, 1910, and 1867 when it was just a military fort. Though Alcatraz could hold up to 336 inmates, there were usually only about 260 or 270 inside. According to the Federal Bureau of Prisons, at any given time, Alcatraz had less than 1% of the total federal prison population. In its years as a federal prison, Alcatraz only held about 1,500 prisoners total. Many prisoners actually considered the living conditions, for instance, always one man to a cell at Alcatraz to be better than other federal prisons. And several inmates actually requested a transfer to Alcatraz, according to a history of the prison by the Federal Bureau of Prisons. In particular, inmates praised the food and some claimed to feel safer in Alcatraz's individual cells because not having a cellmate minimized the risk of assault. But while Alcatraz was not the America's devil's island that books and movies often portrayed, it was designed to be a prison system's prison. Its isolation made the institution nearly escape-proof, though there were absolutely escape attempts, none of which are believed to be successful, but it was the design of daily life that really made Alcatraz a prison system's prison. Alcatraz was known for its highly structured, monotonous daily routine that was designed to teach an inmate to follow rules and regulations. At Alcatraz, a prisoner had four rights—food, clothing, shelter, and medical care. Everything else was a privilege that had to be earned. Some privileges a prisoner could earn included working, corresponding with and having visits from family members, access to the prison library, and recreational activities such as painting and music— Once prison officials felt a man no longer posed a threat and could follow the rules, usually after an average of five years on Alcatraz, he could then be transferred back to another federal prison to finish his sentence and be released. One particularly harsh treatment was the rule of silence, which mandated that prisoners only speak to each other during meals or recreation. It lasted through the late 1930s. Conditions in the prison were bad for white inmates, but even worse for people of color behind bars. One African-American prisoner, Robert Lipscomb, gained a reputation among the guards for being a troublemaker because of his repeated protests against segregation and inequality in the prison system during the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s. Lipscomb even wrote to then-U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy about the issue, and orchestrated a protest of unequal race-based treatment in the prison. He was labeled a racial agitator, according to the National Park Service. Alcatraz guards punished him with solitary confinement in a cell with no light for 24 hours at a time. Solitary confinement in Alcatraz was terrible, but it wasn't the worst punishment at the prison by far. There was also a dungeon-like cell called The Hole, a pitch-dark horror with slimy walls crawling with rats. It was reserved for what officials deemed to be the very worst offenders, like Robert Simmons. An African-American man from Savannah, Georgia, Simmons was imprisoned at Alcatraz in 1918 for being a conscientious objector who refused to fight when he was conscripted into service during World War I. When he was brought to the island, Simmons was immediately put in the hole for 14 days. He and 30 other inmates imprisoned for conscientious objection refused to comply with orders. They were placed in iron cages, which were cells where they were forced to stand, chained to the cell door, unable to sit or even turn around for eight hours a day. Despite its grim history and the undeniable suffering that happened there, not that many people died on the island. According to AlcatrazHistory.com, eight people were murdered by inmates, five men committed suicide, and 15 died from natural causes. But then, there were the men who tried to escape. Of the 36 men who attempted it, 23 were caught, six were killed by prison guards, and the remaining seven either drowned or were presumed drowned because they were never recovered. The government chose Alcatraz for a prison because it was virtually escape-proof, but that didn't stop people from trying. Sometimes in the most inventive ways. Some tried to climb fences, only to fall 100 feet to their death. Some filed bars in the windows in the machine shop, only to likely drown in a bad storm. In 1938, three inmates attacked and killed a correctional officer, and then climbed to the roof to attack another. One was shot dead, and the other two received life sentences. In 1943, four prisoners took two officers hostage, escaping to the beach. Two were apprehended, one was shot and presumed drowned, and one, also presumed dead, was found alive and recaptured after emerging from the sea cave he had been hiding in for two days. In 1946, though, was an insurrection so big it was later called the Battle of Alcatraz. Six prisoners overpowered officers gaining access to weapons and the keys to the cell house, When the men realized they didn't have the keys to the yard, they knew they were trapped but decided to fight. They shot and killed two officers and wounded 16 others before the Marines were called in to help regain control of the prison. In the end, three of the insurrectionists were killed, two were sentenced to the death penalty, and one received a second life sentence. Of the 14 escape attempts, all of them were unsuccessful, probably. There's a slim chance one or two of the missing really did make it to land, although probably not. Civilian swimmers have successfully crossed the one and one-quarter mile stretch to Alcatraz, but they had the benefit of exercise and conditioning and weren't subject to a prison diet. Experts think it's unlikely any of the men who weren't found made it to the mainland. Maybe to counteract some of the awful truths about the prison, and maybe because it's just human nature to turn rumors and stories into legends, happier tales have grown around Alcatraz too. But that's the thing, they're just stories. The most famous of all of them is The Birdman of Alcatraz, a tall tale about Robert Stroud, originally imprisoned for manslaughter, who was moved to the federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas, after attacking another inmate. He was then transferred to Alcatraz after being convicted of first-degree murder of a Leavenworth prison guard. Stroud raised and sold birds during his time at that prison, even writing a book called Diseases of Canaries, which had to be smuggled out to be published, but all that stopped in Kansas. According to the Federal Bureau of Prisons, Stroud never had any birds at Alcatraz, nor was he the grandfatherly person portrayed by Burt Lancaster in the well-known movie. Another rumor that isn't true, that Al Capone used to play his banjo in the bathroom. Wild San Francisco Tours wrote about this one, which often ends up in stories about the hauntings at Alcatraz. Due to fearing that he would be killed if he dared to play the banjo in the open, the website wrote, he resolved to practice it in the showers. Some say they can still hear the banjo music playing there on occasion. Capone definitely did play banjo in the prison band, called the Rock Islanders, which gave concerts on Sundays for other inmates, but there's no substantiated accounts of Capone being afraid to practice or playing in the showers. I've investigated Alcatraz many times, and I've never once heard the sounds of a ghostly banjo in a bathroom. And trust me, I would recognize that sound. I've been on the Haunted Mansion ride at Disney enough times to know a ghost banjo when I hear one. The federal prison on Alcatraz closed on March 21, 1963, with prisoners being located to other federal penitentiaries. Alcatraz didn't close because of the increasingly daring and deadly escape attempts, but rather, as most things in government go, because of money. The island prison needed an estimated $3 to $5 million in repairs to keep the prison open. Beyond that, Alcatraz was significantly more expensive to operate than any other federal prison. Nearly three times the cost, in fact. According to the Federal Bureau of Prisons, the daily per capita cost at Alcatraz in 1959 was $10. $10 compared to $3 at Atlanta's Federal Correctional Facility. In 1970, a fire on the island damaged its historic lighthouse and destroyed four buildings. Two years later, Alcatraz became part of the new Golden Gate National Recreation Area, and the prison opened to the public. It's now a massively popular tourist destination, bringing in more than 1.4 million visitors a year, according to the park's conservancy. They explore the shoreline, tour the grounds, walk through cell blocks, peer into the darkness of solitary confinement, and quite often, they experience things they can't explain. Visitors say they hear strange sounds and have even claimed to have seen the old, now-burned lighthouse reappear on foggy nights, illuminated by an eerie green light. But reports of hauntings at Alcatraz aren't new. Prisoners and even guards were claiming to have seen terrifying things there nearly a century ago. While the island served as a federal penitentiary, several guards reported extraordinary experiences, including hearing the sounds of sobbing and moaning, terrible smells and reports of what they called the Thing, an entity that was said to appear with glowing eyes, author Kathy Weiser wrote in Ghosts of Alcatraz Island. Other reports were made of phantom prisoners and soldiers appearing before the guards and families who lived on the island. Especially as the prison aged and collected more and more traumatic experiences and deaths, guards reported strange noises, especially from a corridor where three inmates were shot as they were trying to escape. Reportedly, even Warden Johnston, who did not believe in ghosts, once encountered the unmistakable sounds of a woman sobbing while leading several guests on a tour of the prison, Kathy Weiser wrote. The cries heard by the warden and the guests were described as coming from inside the walls of the dungeon. Just as the sobbing stopped, an icy cold wind blew through the group. There's even a notorious story about an apparition in the warden's house during a Christmas party. Guests reported seeing a man appear before them wearing a gray suit and mutton chop sideburns. As he materialized, guards later recounted the room turned very cold and the fire in the stove went out. Then the man vanished. Though the house has since burned down, people still regularly claim to have strange experiences at that spot on the island. The most and most terrifying paranormal experiences have been reported inside the prison walls. Throughout cell blocks A, B, and C, visitors and National Park Service employees have reported hearing mysterious screams, moaning and crying from disembodied voices, crashing sounds, and running footsteps. Night watchmen have said they've repeatedly heard strange clanging coming from cell block C, which stops as soon as the guard opens the door to investigate. Cell block D, though, is another story altogether. Allegedly the most haunted section of the prison, the area was plagued with dark happenings even when prisoners were still incarcerated there. It is believed that one night in the 1940s, a prisoner of the cell was screaming in terror about seeing a creature with glowing eyes. The next day, officers found the prisoner strangled to death in his cell. The ghost of that prisoner now roams the area seeking revenge. That revenge part might be a little outlandish, But there have been multiple accounts of a being with glowing eyes, especially around cell 14D, where a prisoner did actually die after claiming to have seen the creature. Visitors today report feeling extreme cold when they enter that space, as though there is something otherworldly in the room. A former guard who worked at the prison in the 1940s reported that guards often saw the ghostly presence of a man dressed in late 1800s prison attire walking the hallway next to the strip cells. On one occasion, when an inmate was locked in the hole, he immediately began to scream that someone with glowing eyes was in there with him. The 19th century spectral prisoner had become so much of a practical joke among the guards that the convict's cries of being attacked were ignored. The inmate's screams continued well into the night when they were suddenly replaced by total silence. When the guards inspected the cell the following morning, the convict was found dead with a terrible expression on his face, and noticeable handprints around his throat. The autopsy revealed that the strangulation was not self-inflicted. Up next, we're going to chat about all of this with my good friend Chris Fleming. He and I both have investigated Alcatraz on a few occasions, and together we'll share our experiences and theories on why the rock is so haunted. That is coming up after the break. All right. So I am sitting here with one of my, I don't want to say oldest friends because we're not old, but we've known each other for a very long time. Uh, Mr. Chris Fleming. I mean, he's a paranormal investigator, medium, researcher. You wear many hats, don't you, Chris?
0: Yes, I do, Amy. (laughs) (laughs) I have a closet full.
1: (laughs) I believe it. I often marvel over your closet, actually. You always dress very well. So that aside, full disclosure for people listening, I already explained this to Chris, but in the epitome of first world problems, I am on vacation right now on a very different island than the one we're about to talk about. I'm on the big island of Hawaii, and the ocean is so loud outside my room (laughs) that I'm literally recording this in a closet. (laughs) And (laughs) I'm doing my best. I'm hearing housekeeping outside. I hear the ocean behind me. So... We'll just let it add to the ambiance as we talk about Alcatraz, right? Exactly. So I wanted to talk to Chris because, like me, he has investigated Alcatraz a couple of times. And it's one of those places that is hard to investigate. It's not really open to investigations. And I know the first time I investigated was in like 2007 or 8, And the way we were able to do it was... They have a lottery system for overnights. And so I was working with a nonprofit and basically we put our name in for the lottery for the overnight and we got it. And so a group of like 15 or 20 of us just all got to go and spend the night on Alcatraz. And it was such an interesting cast of characters. It was me, Dave Schrader was there, Mark and Debbie Constantino were there. Patrick Burns was there. It was just like, just this really cool, like kind of hodgepodge of group of investigators. And it was really fun. It was one of my first like really um, cool experiences with the paranormal community. So just a neat story. Now, how did you get to investigate the rock?
0: It was always one of my top 10 places I wanted to go. And when I had got hired to do this TV show, Dead Famous, we had various locations. And one of the episodes was on Al Capone so they said, we're going to Alcatraz. And I'm like, oh my God, it's been on my list. So we went to Alcatraz uh, during the middle of the day and we were there all the way till early in the morning, the first time we were there. And because of what I captured on my recorder, some of the EVPs, when production presented this to the network, they said, "Oh my God!" So they quickly greenlit a special, "Return to mm. Alcatraz." So a couple months later, we went back out to Alcatraz, but this time we spent an entire 24 hours there, which was great. You know, we didn't sleep; we just went through the whole investigation the whole time, documenting it. So
1: That's for me, awesome. it
0: was a dream come true.
1: We're very fortunate to have been able to go, and even to have been able to go on more than one occasion. Like I'm well aware of how awesome that is. I did sleep. On the island. I slept in cell block D, which is supposedly. Oh,
0: to- <laughs> I got stories for you.
1: <laughs> I slept all by myself in a cell. Like I find, you know how you kind of hit a wall at some point when you're investigating like three or four in the morning. You're like, okay, I need a moment. I didn't sleep that well, it turns out. So not that night. So so tell me what happened to you in cell block D.
0: Well, the first uh, time we went there, um, they said, Chris, you know, we're going to put you in cell block D in 14 because there's this story. They tell me the story. They said that, oh, great. I'm not going in there. <laughs> you know? The story was, for those that don't know, and I don't know if you shared it already, was that an inmate was put in there for something he did. And to describe the cell is there's no window. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. It's pitch dark and there's really nothing to sleep on. So they were basically in there with nothing. Mm-hmm. The inmate was screaming out that there was something in there with him and had like these glowing eyes Yes, and he was terrified the uh, security guards are like, oh yeah, right. You know, whatever the next morning they go there, he's dead. Mm -hmm. And from what rumor says is that he was choked around the throat and he was killed and they don't know how this happened. So it scared other inmates, but they use this against them where they would tend to put inmates in there that were really bad. And they'd be terrified. They didn't want to go in there because they heard what happened to this guy. So they uh, put me in cell block 14 (laughs) D and I was in there for about 45 minutes, almost an hour and nothing. I felt nothing. So I'm like, all right, this is not working. This is well. Do you want to try some of the other cells? I said, sure. So I went down to 13, didn't feel anything, went to cell block 12, which is just two doors down. That is where things started happening. I started feeling some stuff and then my recorder shut off by itself, which Mm -hmm. scared the hell out of me because it's very tinty inside there. Any sound is amplified. And when you're in pitch dark by yourself, filming yourself with a camera in your left hand, it was startling. But what happened was I was basically calling out saying, come on, there's prisoners here. I've had experiences since I was a child, you know, show me something, prove something to me that you're here. Were you afraid of me? And I played back the audio and I caught this EVP that says, I'll face you. Oh my God. Oh my God. Amy, it's, it's when you listen to the sound of the voice, like when I speak to people and I present this EVP to them in some of my lectures, you can tell the personality as if there's some older guy with tattoos You know, obviously an inmate, but then also the voice is very rough, like he smoked a lot. (laughs) And I'm like, Yeah, the personality comes through clearly. So there was other EVP twos, like we're going to effing, kill you, stuff like that, which was very violent because here I was antagonizing them, saying, Prove yourself. So for us, it was extraordinary that okay, we got some contact through EVP. I did pick up, there was a lot of residual energy that was there obviously from inmates being there, a lot of emotional dismay, violence. But the one interesting thing, I did connect with one spirit. it was actually near the laundry room, which I at first I thought was very peaceful. like, "Oh, well, this is peaceful. <laughs> it's away from everybody else where people don't get bothered." And then all of a sudden something connected with me and it shifted. And for me, to this day, this still is probably one of the most emotional connections I've had with a spirit beside one spirit who was trying to find his daughters. This inmate that was there had killed a woman. And when he was killing her, unfortunately, a child came out of one of the rooms and he ended up killing that child. Mm. Now his soul had died there. And basically he he's saying is like, I've always regretted killing that child. And because of that, I can never go to heaven. I can never leave this place. So he's basically stuck there. And the, the most horrific part about that, and you understand this with working with Chip, is we will sometimes see the visuals and the emotions of what this person experienced and what they did. So I'm breaking down crying. It's as if I just witnessed it right in front of me. So still to this day, it's probably one of the most emotional connections that I've had with a spirit in witnessing this, but also the remorse that this soul had in spirit to what he had done. So that was one interesting connection that occurred.
1: That brings up a good point. And I'm not a medium or psychic by any stretch, but I've always wondered if maybe the reason why prisons end up being haunted, not even necessarily by people who actually pass there, is that they feel like they deserve to be there. Like it's kind of this, you know, self-imposed sentence. Do you think that's true? Oh,
0: yeah. Besides the residual energy of what some of these inmates did and how they thought, such as Robert Stroud, Birdman, he was just—he had this mentality where he liked to see people killed. He Mm. got off on watching this. But then you had some other inmates there that were terrified of other people. I mean, Al Capone was stabbed with scissors in the showers, and he didn't get away with a lot of stuff that he did at other prisons. That's why they put him in Alcatraz. Was because they knew he was not going to get away and pay people off, which he didn't. Mm -hmm. So he was there for about four and a half years. But you have. Some There's about eight people I hear that had died there. Spirits are going to be there. But what's interesting about the place is not only do you have the residual energy and some inmates like we're describing that are stuck there because they feel they don't want to go anywhere else because the crimes they committed. But Native Americans were there over 200 years ago. That was their land. Right. And even in recorded history regarding them, they talked about evil spirits, that mm-hmm. there was evil spirits on that land. Well, from... Looking at Alcatraz when it got taken over in the 1930s, I believe, and then it got shut down around 1963, Native Americans took back that land because there was a law, some decree that said federally regulated land after seven years, if they don't occupy it or use it for anything, it will revert back to the original owners. So it went back to the Native Americans. So they moved in in the late 1960s and they started living in the cells and in various buildings. And after two months, they started having experience started hearing yelling. Some of them were getting choked mm. and seeing certain shadows. So some of them got, and they use the term spooked because we interviewed one of the Native Americans and he says, we got spooked and yeah. there were spooks around here. So some of us moved to other sections of the island to get away from it. But mm-hmm. then uh, shortly after that, some of them started going crazy. They said wow. mentally they were fighting amongst themselves, getting irritated, agitated, emotional issues. And what eventually happened is in 1972, they were escorted off the island mm. because there, chaos had broke out. Right. And even some of the buildings, they set on fire and they're like, why are you doing this? It's supposed to be our land. So what I believe happened is because of the spirits that had been there before, but then also all these inmates may have psychologically started affecting them. Mm-hmm. We know that happens in certain places you go to it and it affect you emotionally, mentally, and they left.
1: Right. I mean, I could see that because they basically attempted to inhabit a space that never really was a positive place. And I feel like that energy leaves kind of a, quite an imprint on a location. And, you know, the fact that it's an island in the middle of like the bay and there's just, it's very isolating. And I mean, I could see that for sure. So to rewind for a moment, I do have that EVP that you talked about earlier. I'd love to play it really quick. And I love that it's on a cassette recorder, too, which is really neat. Here we go. It's really cool. That's clear. (laughs) You just get chills. (laughs) You get the goosebumps.
0: (laughs) And I remember I was up at four in the morning going through all the audio because the old cassette, you know, you got to listen to it when you find it. Then you just extract it, put it on, you know, to record it and send it. And I jumped up out of there going, no way. And I was like, <sighs> yes. I was like, holy cow. I mean, the crew, you know, the production and even the network, they're like, oh my God. And that got us to go back there. And, and I remember when I went back there, I played it over and over and over again, looping it to try to antagonize the spirit. So, okay, I'll face you, show yourself. Right? Nothing happened with the people I was with. We felt them getting angry. That was it. So I went back into the cell by myself again. And I started feeling, Tons of anxiety. I started feeling freaked out. And I'm like, you know what? I, I can't take this anymore. I feel like I can't even breathe. So I started to get up to go out of the cell just to get away for just a little bit. And I got shoved.
1: Oh my God. Now, goodness. what's
0: amazing is on the camera, we caught an EVP that says, We got you.
1: That's wild. Which
0: they made physical contact. They shoved me.
1: Yeah. They showed you finally. They were- <laughs> You know, I got some really great EVPs in the morgue area. I, I don't have them anymore, unfortunately. It's been so many years. But then when we went back with Ghost Hunters years later, they wouldn't allow us into the morgue any longer. Were you able to go in there?
0: You know what? I cannot remember. I know we went into just about every place that was there. Cell block D is where I had the laundry room, either in the shower area. I picked up on some stuff. I remember I was in Robert Stroud's room picking up. Residual audio regarding him, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden we heard these screams because there was another female psychic that was there. Gail was there, and our producer. They were all together shooting on the opposite side of Alcatraz of the building, and we heard these screams like as if terror. So we jumped up, and Richard Sennett was with me, and we chased after them, and they walk up to us like nothing happened. So then we're thinking, was it the seagulls? Because you could hear the seagulls out. Yeah, there. we played the audio back. And you can compare it with the sounds of the seagulls and the screams, and it is definitely female screams.
1: Yeah, the EVPs that I got in the morgue were female. Like they were very clearly, it was a female voice and she sounded kind of desperate and I believe I actually was in there with Mark and Debbie. They got it on their recorders as well, this woman. So it makes me wonder who is this woman, but there were also families who lived there, you know, the families of like the warden and and certain employees actually lived on the island. Children were raised there, which is crazy to think about. And it is isolated. But you do hear animals. You hear sea lions, which do not sound like people screaming. <laughs> and, you right. hear, and you hear, like you said, seagulls. And you'll hear, like, the occasional foghorn in the distance. But it's strange to be on that island and be staring at one of the biggest cities in the world, but be in complete silence. Like, I, I thought about how that must have felt to some of those inmates where... They had these tiny windows and things for them to be so close to something so bustling and busy and alive, but just out of reach. Like that had to have been torture for them.
0: Oh, yeah. And who even knows, too, underneath the, the big rock, as they call it, the rock, what's underneath their ley lines? You've got the water frequency vibration. So it's like that all that energy is contained because you've got the waves right. that are creating frequency and vibration around it, surrounding it, that that doesn't dissipate. I mean, mm-hmm. it's almost as if you've got a container and you're containing everything in there, which could be what affected Native Americans and they left. So for anybody that understands is emotions, trauma, violence, events can be recorded. We call it place memory. It's also called residual energy. In the UK, they call it stone tape theory.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And parapsychologists discuss this. William Roll identified place memory is that these emotions can just be recorded there. Now, when you're put in that room from past impressions, you know, you're going to start absorbing that. You're right. going to start affecting your own mental state, your physical body, because those frequencies are playing over and over and over again, and you're sitting right in it. So for a place like that, many people might go there and they don't feel anything, but another period of time, they will. It all depends upon what's playing and what they're picking up at that time. So it's a remarkable place. You know, you can catch EVPs of spirits that are there presently, or you can even catch residual audio from the past of conversations or events that occurred.
1: Oh, I bet. And I actually never thought about that, how inmates may be put there later, and they're also being affected by past trauma and that kind of imprint of what happened there before they even got there. And so that might have affected just some of the outcomes that way and their psychological state. (laughs) I mean, I can't even imagine. And that also explains why, you know, people made escape attempts as well. So when we were there with ghost hunters, we did get a lot of EVPs. At one point, Jane Grant actually got the name of a past inmate and were wow. able to cross-reference it with actual records and find record of this person actually having been there at one point, which was pretty well, it wasn't any well-known person. They didn't have, they just had to look through records. So I thought that was really interesting. And I am trying to, oh, it was our hundredth episode special. So that was a big deal. <laughs> oh, I remember. I remember.
0: I did watch that.
1: It was like uh, I think we did we did a live show from the actual Saturday Night Live studio. Josh Gates hosted, and it was so awkward. It was like they would trot us out on stage, and he would ask us questions, and then they would play a clip of the investigation. So it was like this live show from Saturday Night Live studios. <laughs> And they would cut back to the investigation we'd done like two months before on Alcatraz.
0: It's (laughs) Saturday night.
1: (laughs) But it was special. It was a big deal. Then we made it to 200 episodes. But it was was kind of interesting. But, I mean, we were there for two or three nights. And I remember distinctly hearing footsteps on multiple occasions. We saw a shadow figure at least once. It was one of the first places we tried using a laser grid. Definitely voices. Lots of voices. And so are there any other like major experiences that you remember having?
0: Um, well, beside the being pushed and then also seeing the shadow person in the one room, which we didn't capture on camera because we were taking a break. We were all exhausted. Right. That's and how I remember that works. Seeing, yeah. There was these benches that were on the floor and I forget it was a great hall or something. And I remember seeing this just shadow form go right across the wall and then goes away from the wall to where it's three-dimensional and it was high up too, but it was very ver- uh, vertical. And then it darted right behind and said, oh my God, I just saw a shadow. And they're like, well, we're charging our batteries. They're like, you know, the camera crew's like, we charged, so we didn't even <laughs> use it. So for me, that was pretty cool. The other thing was, is that I know that there was some arguing and there was some, I want to say dissension or... Bickering going on, but some, some of the crew, which we started getting affected. And even though my co-host, mm-hmm. the first time we were there, we, we started getting affected and getting angry at each other. And I was just at that time I didn't realize how the place was actually affecting us. And I know this now, of course, m- many years of investigating, but it was affecting us as a production crew, the emotions, which is one tactic that sometimes these negative spirits will do is to get you out of there. They'll make you fight amongst yourself just to ruin what you're doing. So for us, that was something we obviously didn't discuss during the show, mm-hmm. but it was something that went on behind the scenes. And it was, yeah. uh, I mean, literally we, we kind of, some of us wanted to get off that Island the very first time because of what was happening, but we went back the second time we kind of prepared ourselves to fight any of that off.
1: Mm, it is really surreal that morning that you leave when the sun's coming up and they right come, they come and fetch you off the Island and, and yes. you kind of look back at it. And you're like, what did I just do? Like this, this is the wildest thing. And it, it's very serene and peaceful, but you kind of, you're like, I, I got to leave. I got to literally escape when so many others did not.
0: <laughs> it, it's, you just nailed it with what you said, because both times I remember just looking back at that island going, oh my God, you know, how could anybody swim from that rock all the way to the shore? Because the, the water's ice cold, plus it's very choppy. It's like, there's just no way. And I kept saying, is there sharks here? You know, someone oh, there, there are. I know. That's what I heard.
1: <laughs> Yeah, I grew up not far from there. So, you know, in that kind of moment, like when you grow up near something, you tend to not go there. I've learned like if there's some sort of touristy spot, like I didn't even go to Alcatraz, I think until that first time I went to investigate it. And like I said, it's just it's always going to be one of those kind of profound paranormal moments for me. So
0: I want to share this with you, too, is that we also got to interview one of the park rangers and also one of the inmates that was actually there. And he, he called the place a living hell. And when he was asked you know, what type of stuff went on, he says, well, there's a couple of things he experienced, but from some of the other inmates and what had been passed on over the years was, which some of the stuff we discussed already was they heard crying, they heard moans, they heard yelling, noises, some of them had been touched, but they also heard doors closing. And sometimes mm-hmm. they would hear some of the cells open and they would go look to see who, who's getting out, what's going on. Are they opening it up for us? And you know, there's nothing there. And then also they had talked about hearing banjo. Uh, sounds of banjos playing or even harmonicas late at night, but yet nobody would be playing it. So they wonder if that was previous inmates that may have played something, but yet that music would still echo through the halls of the prison. So it's the type of place you want to go there and kind of just sit and listen for a period of time and move from place to place to see what you're going to pick up, but also record because obviously you know a lot of EVPs, we don't hear only down to 20 Hertz and it goes way below that. And record the entire time you're there and then listen to it and you'd be surprised upon playback some of the responses you get that that you weren't feeling anything, but they're right Right? beside you.
1: And I think that, you know, people might assume that they need to do an overnight or and they do do night tours that I think there are limited amounts of people on those. So that might be easier if people do want to bring some equipment. But even when you go during the day, it's not completely packed. It's actually pretty easy to kind of sneak off and do a little EVP work or, you know, they do have lots of experiences on tours. You know, I've heard from tour guides, from rangers, from former employees that they've had things happen in the middle of the day with plenty of people around. And and so don't let that dissuade you listeners. Like definitely head out there if you're in the area. Obviously, Chris and I were really lucky to do what we were able to do, but you can still very much go out and have experiences.
0: Would you go back there?
1: Oh, 100%. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I would I, I would love to go back now just with kind of, I feel like my methodologies and ideas and theories have changed so dramatically since when I investigated. Because I think, that, like I said, the first time I was there in 2007 or 8, I think we filmed with Ghost Hunters in 2009 or 10. So we're talking like 12 years ago, mm-hmm. under very different circumstances. So... Hopefully one day I'll get the opportunity. If there's anybody from Alcatraz listening who can make it happen, we'll have Chris come on as a guest on Kindred. (laughs) No, I would would love to go back there,
0: especially like you said, I mean, 10 years has passed. You know, for me, it's like 17, 16, but also some of the ITC technology we have today. I mean, my God, it's like we could in actual real time communicate back and forth with them, which I feel would be fascinating to come in contact again with those spirits there.
1: I completely agree. So let's put it out in the universe. There you let's go. make it happen <laughs> somehow, some way. So well, before we go, what are you doing now? You're always doing things. Please tell everyone like how they can find you, how they can see you, like what projects yeah. you're working on. No, thank
0: you. Yeah, you guys mm-hmm. can just find me on social media, you know, Chris Fleming Official or Chris Fleming91, but then also ChristopherFleming.com. dot com. I'm gonna be redoing the website in about two months. I've been behind in my own podcast because I've had a lot go on and I'm gonna be getting caught up in the next couple of weeks. But the other thing is I filmed a brand new series in the UK. I'm not on help anymore. I did two seasons of that, moved on to Mm -hmm. this other project. And this project is supposed to come out April or May. Uh, I'm waiting to hear. And it's kind of a surprise. So I can't say too much about it, but shot uh, nine episodes for that. And it was (laughs) some of the most beautiful, most incredible places I think I've ever been to. So I'm really excited to see how this turns out.
1: Well, amazing. I know I always see you on social media going to fun places. So I can't wait to watch. Well, thank you so much um, for taking the time. It's nice to catch up. I saw you briefly in Vegas, and then you were gone. So Mm -hmm. we'll have to catch up again soon in person at at another event or something.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much. I appreciate all the best to you, your family and all the listeners.
1: Likewise. Thank you, Chris. Alcatraz is one of the haunts I get asked about most often. At the same time, it's one of those that isn't really investigated all that often. What we have to go on are mostly reports given to us by employees, park rangers, and tourists. I'd love to get in there and really get some answers, spend a few nights with the ghosts in the middle of the bay, finding out just who they are and why they linger. It's most certainly haunted, and I can absolutely understand why, but it may continue being one of those large question marks in my paranormal career. So if anyone has an in on the rock, please drop me a line. Until then, please visit and let me know what you find and experience. I'm Amy Bruni, and this was Haunted Road.
0: Haunted Road is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The podcast is written and hosted by Amy Bruni. Executive producers include Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. The show is produced by Rima Ilkayali and Trevor Young.
1: Research by
0: Taylor Hagerdorn, Amy Bruni, and Robin Miniter. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.